with me, if you will, to the end of Acts chapter 4. We're going to be in the end of Acts 4, beginning of Acts 5, as we continue uh, walking through the story continued through the book of Acts. Hey, if you've spent any time on social media lately, you will know, you, will, you probably have found out that it's hot outside. Uh, seems to be that's what we're posting about. We're letting each other know it's hot. Don't go out there. I've seen a few people shivering in here this morning. Enjoy it, okay? Enjoy it while it lasts. Absorb it, okay? Um, it is hot. And, and not only on social media are we talking about it, just I've found just if, if I'm outside and I see somebody, uh, that's just kind of, instead of saying, hey, how you doing? We just say, it's so hot. It's so hot. And that kind of just covers all the bases of conversation. It's just brutally, brutally hot. And so that makes me really thankful for electricity. Anybody thankful for electricity? Thankful that you have an air conditioner in your house? I mean, it's just, it's, if it's working, if yours is broken down right now, I'm sorry to pour salt in a wound. But, um, you know, electricity has transformed our lives. In a really short amount of time of human history, we have come to be really dependent on electricity to the point that, I mean, we just take it for granted. And if, we're, if our power is out for a few minutes, that's a big deal, isn't it? If our power is out for a few hours, I mean, call the president right? I mean, we're in trouble. So once upon a time in a galaxy not too far away, not so long ago, remember, there wasn't electric lighting. There were no electric pumps. There was no air conditioning. No air conditioning. Um, And one day, once upon a time, somebody came along proclaiming this good news that the power of electricity was at hand. And all you had to do was connect to the service wire coming through and you would have all the power of electricity at your, at your disposal. And, and, the, and the, this electricity would have the power to bring, to bring light to your home and to bring comfort to your home. And some believed. And in faith, they connected to, uh, to the power lines that were coming through. They got on the grid and others said, it's just a fad, I'm not going to do it. I don't trust that stuff. And so those that did believe, their lives were radically transformed. Um, suddenly you could, uh, you could work all night if you wanted to. You could read all night if you wanted to. You could have, uh, you could have air conditioning. You could have all these things electricity has made possible. Um, and it's brought power. Electricity has brought power into our lives that for the majority of human history had been unheard of. And it's brought comfort into our lives that for most of human history has been unparalleled and unheard of and unimagined. And we can take electricity so for granted that we sometimes forget that the same electric power that brings us comfort can also kill us. The same power that comforts us can also kill us. I got a crash course in this a few years ago. We had had bought our first home, and uh, I didn't know, I knew even less than I know now, if you can believe that. And I didn't know anything about electricity, but I didn't let a little thing like ignorance keep me from just jumping in uh, with both feet, okay? Uh, and so this is a public service announcement for what not to do. So I was pretty sure, I was messing with some, uh, with some electricity, and, and I was pretty sure I had the right breaker off, but I mean, I didn't have a tester or anything to test it, but I was pretty sure I was right. And I uh, grabbed a hold of it, and whoa, you know, out of the abundance of my heart, my mouth spoke, and I can still feel that. If you've ever, if you've ever gotten shot, if you've ever gotten bit by electricity, I mean, I, I, the, if you feel it in your joints and in your teeth, and, and you know, and Sonda kind of saw me, and I was kind of like that, and, and uh, uh, 
you know, Jerry has a background in, in the electrical field, and it wasn't like he was sitting in a substation somewhere and said, oh, Matt has grabbed a wire. I'm going to push a button, and I'm going to fry him. It wasn't like a targeted thing. It was, although he would do that if he had the opportunity, but it, 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 it wasn't like a targeted thing. It was more of just kind of a law of nature kind of thing. Electricity is this awesome force. It, it, there's danger to it. And it's worthy of respect. And after it bit me, ever since then, I have had a new level of fear and respect for the power of electricity. I have testers now, and I'm, I double and triple check that I've gotten the breakers turned off. And I walked away with awe and fear for the power of electricity. Um, and when I mess with it now, I pay attention. I learned that the same power that comforts me has the power to kill me. Electricity isn't playing games. I share that story today because we're dealing with today with one of the toughest passages in the book of Acts. Um, this passage deals with two subjects we are uncomfortable talking about. It deals with the subjects of greed and judgment. Two subjects that make us really uncomfortable. Um, and this passage also reveals some things that are very key about what it means to be the church. Actually, the word church is used for the first time in Acts, in Acts 5.11. It's the first time in the whole uh, book of Acts it's used. So there's something about this passage that we're in today that's instructive for us. Um, and, and so, and so we're, we're going to read today about a miracle of judgment. And you say, miracle of judgment? That doesn't sound like a miracle I want, and it's not a miracle you want. Um, in the book of Acts, there's all these miracles happening. You're so close in proximity to the resurrection of Jesus, and God is at work validating the message of the gospel, and it's like there's a million volts of electricity running through the early church. Um, and that same power that was at work to, to heal the sick and, and, and to bring 3,000 people at a time to salvation, that same power uh, that brought so much comfort in the wake of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, that same power is deadly if you try to play games with it. And Ananias and Sapphira are a couple that we're going to meet, and they go in and they grab a hold of a million volts of electricity barehanded, and they suffer the consequences for it. The same power of God that moves so mightily to heal and save and shake free and, 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 and revive, that same power that brings such comfort, that power can kill us because God isn't playing games. And so this is a difficult message to bring uh, because I want us to know how much God loves us. And God does. He loves us with an everlasting love. And God is gracious but he's not a tame lion, as C.S. Lewis wrote in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia books. He's not, ta- he's not safe, and he's not tame, and we don't need to play games with him. And so we're going to meet today two powerful examples. We're going to meet at the end of Acts chapter 4, Barnabas, whose life serves as a witness of the power of God and the goodness of the gospel. And we're going to meet Ananias and Sapphira, whose lives serve as a warning against the foolishness of trying to con God. A warning against the foolishness of trying to play games with God. A warning against living an idolatrous life. Something that Todd Wagner says a lot, uh, I respect him a lot, something he says a lot is that your life is either a witness or a warning. And that's absolutely true. Your life is either a witness to the goodness of the gospel or it's a warning against the folly 
of idolatry. Your life is such that onlookers are either looking at your life and saying, Whoa! Or they're looking at your life and saying, Whoa! What's the difference? What's the difference? Onlookers are either going to look at your life and say, Whoa! Or woe. Because our lives are either a witness or they're a warning. So let's look at Barnabas. At the end of Acts chapter 4, we have one of these summary statements. Uh, I have one of these summary... Your name means Barnabas, right? Okay. Uh, We've got, we got one of these uh, summary statements of, uh, uh, of the early church. We have a summary at the end of Acts chapter 2, and now we have another one here at the end of Acts chapter 4. And kind of what has just happened, remember, uh, Peter and, 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 and John, they prayed over this, uh, uh, this uh, ill man, and uh, the lame man, and he walked, and there's a celebration and praise of God. But the authorities bring them in and tell Peter and John, hey, you can't do this anymore. You can't keep telling everybody Jesus is the king. And they say, well, you know, we're going to keep doing that. And so they're threatened and then they're turned loose. And Peter and John gather with the church and they pray together that they would have boldness to continue to proclaim the name of Jesus. And we're told that the place where they were gathered shook and they were filled with boldness and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, and so right after that, beginning in verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. There's at least about 10,000 believers at this time in different house churches around Jerusalem. About 10,000 people, and we find that all of them are of one heart and soul. There is this gospel-centered unity going on. Christian unity is not grounded in ethnicity, it's not grounded in uh, economics, it's not grounded in uh, I like the same things you like or, or we have the same preferences. Christian unity is grounded in one thing, it's grounded in the gospel. And so if we have the gospel in common, regardless of what our politics are or what our preferences are, if we've got the gospel in common, we can walk in unity. If we have the gospel in common that we believe that Christ is king and that he, 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 he lived and, and, and died and rose and is returning, then, then, then we have the thing in common that matters. So the, the early church, they're characterized by this gospel-centered unity, and that gospel-centered unity manifests itself in this gospel-centered generosity. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There's this sharing. In the past uh, a few days around our house, as summer has begun, um, and as there's been some some uh, additions to, our, to our, our family. I don't know how many times we've said the words share, share, share. You got to share. Hey, you need to share. Hey, are you sharing right now? And, and, and uh, uh, sharing does not come naturally to us. And so there's this gospel-centered sharing of life, sharing of possessions, and we read that there was not a needy person among them. In Deuteronomy 15.4, we're told that in this true community that would come, uh, that there won't be a needy among you. And people are selling their, their, their houses, and if they had cars, they would have sold them. And they're selling their camels and all these things, and they're just pooling their resources together. Some people do still own homes because they're, they're, they're meeting in homes, okay? So it's not like you have to sell everything. It wasn't compulsory. But people are just so excited about what God's doing. They're selling their stuff. They're pooling the resources together, and they're taking care of each other. There's this gospel unity and this gospel generosity. There's not a needy among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as anybody had need. Thus Joseph who is also called by the apostles Barnabas. Now, Joseph is going to get a name change. He's going to come to be called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. 
He's not the only person in Acts that's going to get a new name, but he gets this new name that means son of encouragement because he's known by such encouragement. He's one of these guys that, that just leads by example. And he sells this, he's a Levite, so that means he's, he, he was one of the priestly tribe. And he's a Cyprian, he's from the island of Cyprus. And he sells this field that he owned, and he came and he just laid all of it down, all the money down at the apostles' feet and said, hey, do this as you have need of. Give this to people that need it. And he's just held up, Barnabas is held up as this example or as a witness of a man whose life has been transformed by the gospel. And throughout Acts, Barnabas is going to continue to be a witness. Uh, here he, he, we see from just from this passage, he's the guy that he's not asking the question, what's the least I have to give? He's asking, what's the most I can give? And, 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 and if we're honest, most of us are looking for, what, you know, what's, the, what's the least I can do with it? And Barnabas is one of these guys that says, what's the most that I can do? Um, Barnabas is going to be the first, was going to be among the first people when the Apostle Paul goes from being a persecutor of the church to a proclaimer of the gospel. Barnabas is going to be one of the first people that vouches for him. He's going to say, hey, I believe that this transformation is for real. Uh, Barnabas is going to lead the church towards ethnic diversity. Barnabas is going to care about tangible relief work to the poor, and he's going to devote much of his ministry to gathering resources to help the poor. He's going to go with Paul on Paul's first missionary journey, so he's courageous, maybe a little crazy, okay? And John Mark, another disciple that let Paul down, disappointed Paul, Paul said, I don't want anything more to do with John Mark. He can't go on another trip with me. And Barnabas said, hey, John, let's go together. Let's serve together. Barnabas is one of these guys that forgives um, and has a really, really long fuse. Uh, Held up throughout Acts as this witness of a life transformed. He's an example. And so as as we read the end of chapter 4, I mean, it looks like everything is perfect in the church. They're, they're sharing everything, and, and, uh, and they're, they have this common life together. There's this gospel-centered unity. There's this generosity. you got guys like Barnabas selling fields and laying everything down. And, and it's almost like we're reading the story of the Garden of Eden again. You know, at the end of, of Genesis 2, we read, the man and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. There's just shalom that characterizes everything. But then Genesis 3, 1 says, but the serpent. And that's exactly what's going to happen at the beginning of Acts 5. But a man named Ananias. There's a but. And, uh, and uh, the first service was really immature because I used the word but a lot, and they laughed and snickered about it, so I'm going to ask you guys uh, to, 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 to not be that way. But there's a, there's a but here. And, uh, and this church is healthy, but it's not perfect. And sometimes we, we think back about the early church and we imagine that there were no problems. And if we, you know, but there were. And we're going to see this big problem. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they consp- they're a married couple, and they conspire together to try to trick everybody and lie to everybody. And there's always a but. I mean, Trinity, you could say Trinity's a pretty good church, but, right? There's always a but. But what will we do with that but? How will we respond to the but? That's the question. All right, Ryan's biting his tongue. I got I to move on. There's always a but in my life. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty, I'm doing okay with Jesus, but. And how am I going to respond to that? Okay, so things are going great. The summary at the end of chapter four. But there's this man. His name is Ananias. And Ananias means uh, one uh, means one who's been shown grace. Uh, And Sapphira, which means beautiful. They sold a piece of property. And with the wife's full knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of this land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain yours? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He fell down dead. Great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose, had wrapped him up, and carried him out, and they they buried him. John Stott uh, writes that if the devil's first tactic was to destroy the church from without, by force from without, his second was to destroy it by falsehood from within. See, the first, the first way the enemy attacked the church was in chapter 4 through persecution, through this outward force. And that didn't work, and so he tries to attack by falsehood from within. And we've got this Garden of Eden scene where things are rocking and rolling and things are unified, but the enemy comes in, and he comes in by taking in Ananias and Sapphira. And there's this moment where unity, truth, is challenged. Um, Christian unity is grounded in the gospel. It's manifested by truth and generosity, but it's destroyed by hypocrisy. It's destroyed by lies. It's destroyed by greed. The original, one commentator puts it that the original sin of the church or the original uh, sin temptation in the early church dealt with the misuse of money and possessions. How many churches have fallen prey to misusing and mishandling money? How many pastors have? If only we would learn the lesson here. So this but is important. The early church, awesome, but not perfect. Every life and every church has a but, and what are we going to do with that? How will we respond to that? So here's the warning. Ananias and Sapphira, as, as glorious as, of a witness as Barnabas is, Ananias and Sapphira are this terrifying warning. Ananias, again, whose name means the Lord is gracious, and Sapphira, whose name means beautiful, they conspire together. So what's the sin here? Is the sin that they didn't give everything? No, Peter makes that clear. He said, hey, this land was yours to begin with, and it was still yours after you sold it. He says, why have you conspired together to lie to the Holy Spirit. The problem isn't that they didn't give everything. They could have sold their land and given nothing. They could have sold the land and given a dollar. Say they sold the land for 200000 they could have given 10000 or 20000 or 100000 They could have done anything. But what they did was they gave part of it and claimed that they gave all of it. They wanted to look like Barnabas without being like Barnabas. They wanted to look like they were transformed without really being transformed. And they serve as a warning because your life is either a witness to the goodness of the gospel or a warning of the folly of idolatry. Not only are they greedy with their money, but they're greedy for the praise of people. They want to do something that's going to make them look really good to people. But they don't really want to to, to, to suffer the consequences. Uh, John Stott again says they wanted the credit and the prestige of sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. What if everybody today who did something to fatten their own ego dropped dead? I wouldn't be here preaching. And so, about that move of God we want. About that, why aren't we seeing 3,000 people healed and saved? And Why aren't we seeing God do more? Well, if, if hypocrites dropping dead accompanies a million volts of the Holy Spirit, 
Maybe God's being really kind and withholding. They're greedy for the praise of people. They're greedy for money. Peter asked this question, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? In Acts 4, we're told that the hearts of the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. And now that Ananias is contrasted, his heart has been filled by Satan. Is he a believer? He believes he's a believer. Authentic generosity is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. Deceptive greed is the evidence that Satan is at work in our lives. And this couple holds, Barnabas holds people tightly and possessions loosely. This couple holds possessions tightly and people loosely. Um, Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit and he misappropriated funds. That verse in verse, verse 3, you held back. He took what he said was God's and he held it for himself. What if every time we said, I surrender all, what if God really expected us to mean that? If every time we're saying, I surrender all, accept my porn habit, accept my addiction to relationships, accept my workaholism, accept my materialism, every time we say, I surrender all, and we don't mean it, we're lying to the Holy Spirit. And He's gracious. We're not dropping dead. He's gracious and He's good, but He's not tame. Ananias and Sapphira aren't just a couple of broke-down sinners that got a raw deal. Ananias and Sapphira are hypocrites who are trying to play games with God. And as good as God is, and as loving as He is, He is not playing games. Just like a million volts of electricity isn't playing games. He's gracious but he's not tame. And so Peter exposes the sin. And and part of what it means to be the church is that sin is exposed. It's not hidden. Peter exposes the sin. Did you really sell the land for this and that? And Ananias says, yeah, I did. And Peter says, man, why have you lied to this? Why has you let uh, Satan fill your heart and you've lied to the Holy Spirit? It's interesting that Peter, he, 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 he says to Ananias, Satan has filled your heart. It wasn't long ago that Jesus called Peter Satan. Jesus said to, 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 to Peter, hey, get thee behind me, Satan. But the difference between Peter and, between, and Ananias is that Peter repented. And a big reason I believe Peter repented was he had a community of people around him who called him to repentance. And Ananias and Sapphira aren't that kind of community for one another. And apparently they didn't have that kind of community around them. And they roll on in their sin and they roll right into judgment. So Sapphira comes in a few hours later. Peter gives her an opportunity to speak for herself. How much did you sell the land for? Again, the issue isn't how much they gave. The issue is the lie. So so Sapphira backs up her husband, says the same thing, and she drops down dead. And so let's talk a minute about what godly submission is and is not. And Sapphira was not submitting to her husband in a godly way. As a wife, God will never call you to submit to sin. J.D. Greer, uh, put, the pastor puts it this way. He says, you may submit to a mistake of your husband's. Like you may have said, I don't think this job is the right job for you to take. And after you've said it, he's committed to doing it. You know, you roll with it. And then you don't say, I told you so later. Okay. But God's never going to call you as a wife to submit to your husband's sin. You are going to be responsible wives for what you do. And if your husband's not leading the home, he's not in church, he's not serving God, you're not called to wait on him. You're called to be a Christian now. Husbands, you're not not called 
to, to, if your wife's not engaged, you're, you're, you're not going to uh, stand before God one day and say, well, my wife really didn't want to do this. No, you're called to serve and lead and honor Christ now. Sapphira had to answer for Sapphira. And, uh, you know, what would have been biblical submission for her would have been Ananias, I think your heart's out of line. Let's talk to some fellow believers and see how we can get some help on this. Okay? Um, God, you know, you may, as, as, as one of the leaders of our church, you may submit to me in, in making a mistake. You might say, you know what, I think Matt's wrong about this, and I've told him I think he's wrong, but I'm going to roll with him out of respect. But God's never going to call you to submit to me if I'm leading you into sin. You, you might submit if I'm just making a mistake, but he's never going to lead you to submit if I'm leading you into sin. So biblical submission isn't about taking responsibility and putting it over here on the shelf. Biblical submission isn't checking our brains at the door. Uh, biblical submission is we submit and we surrender to Christ first and foremost. Okay, So why do Ananias and Sapphira do this thing? Well, they've got a heart problem. And the reason they've got a heart problem is they've got a worship problem. And if I'm honest, as I look at Barnabas, as I look at Ananias, and I look at their hearts, my heart in its natural state is a lot more like the heart of Ananias than it is like the heart of Barnabas. My heart is a lot more about wanting uh, to, to be seen as better than I really am. That's why I need worship. That's why I need this. That's why my, my, my heart that's so prone to wander, I need to worship with, together with you and I need to worship Christ on my own and I need community with people that are asking me hard questions so that my wayward heart that's a lot like Ananias will be brought over here and become more like Barnabas. Why do they do it? Because they have a heart problem, they got a worship problem, and then they drop dead. Why does that happen? You see this, you don't see this kind of thing happen a lot, but when you do, it's usually at, at, the, at the beginning of a strong, uh, kind of a, a new chapter in God's movement. You see this as the people, of, you see some severe judgment like this when the people of Israel first got freed from Egypt. You see it when they're first going in the promised land with Achan who tried to take what was God's for himself and he got punished for it. You see when, when King David in 2 Samuel 6 is, is uh, transporting the Ark of the Covenant and he's doing it the wrong way and they're transporting it in Jerusalem and it starts to topple over and Uzzah, trying to be helpful, goes and he, and he, and he tries to, to grab the Ark of the Covenant and he, he, he's not supposed to do that and God strikes him dead and David's like, God, why'd you do that? And then here, this is so close to the resurrection. There's all these miracles happening. The, there's a million volts of Holy Spirit power going through here. And Ananias and Sapphira, they walk in and they grab a hold of the wire and they're trying to play games with God. They're trying to play games with a force they don't understand and they don't respect. And the church, the body of Christ in the New Testament is called the temple. It's the temple of God. The people of God are now this temple that take God everywhere we go. And just like you couldn't walk into the Old Testament temple and just do anything you wanted to do and say, what about grace? You can't come into the family of God and just live any kind of way you want. I can't, and you can't. Because God calls us to be a holy people. N.T. Wright says to name the name of Jesus and to invoke the Holy Spirit is to claim to be the temple of the living God and that is bound to have consequences now if every christian who was a hypocrite every christian who was sinning was dropping dead i'd be dead okay 
A couple things I want us to hold together, then we're going to walk out of here. The church is a hospital for sinners. We're a place where no matter what you've done or what you're doing, we want you and we love you and we're going to walk alongside you. But part of how we walk alongside each other as I limp alongside you and you limp alongside me is we call each other to know and love God. We call each other to repentance. And if I know Will's got something going on in his life that's hindering his walk with Christ, and if I turn a blind eye to that and I just say, oh, it's not a big deal, I am not loving Will well. I'm being a coward. That's why it's so important that we not only meet together in this big group like this, but we meet together in smaller groups and we really walk with each other and we ask each other those uncomfortable questions. If Ananias and Sapphira had had somebody in their lives asking them hard questions, maybe they wouldn't have dropped dead. Maybe they wouldn't have lied. There's no such thing as a secret sin or a harmless sin, your porn habit or your gossip or stirring the pot. Addiction to praise, that stuff that's killing you. And there's a difference between being a broke down sinner who's just in need of redemption versus being a hard-hearted, stiff-necked hypocrite who's trying to play games with God. And Ananias and Sapphira are trying to play games with God. And God loves you, but He's not playing games. And so when we complain, why aren't we seeing 3,000? You know, every now and then when my kids don't get what they want, some of the little ones will go like this. Why aren't, and we'll, why aren't we seeing 3,000 people getting saved? Why aren't we seeing people getting healed? Do we want to see what goes along with that? Do we want to see hypocrites dropping dead because I might be the first one to go? So there's repentance on our part that needs to happen because like Richard preached last week, God wants to do so much more in us. This happens, Ananias and Sapphira drop dead, and it's, we're told that awe and fear sweep through the place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this God isn't to be messed with. As the church, we're called to love fellow sinners, and we're called to call each other to repentance. And if there's a fellow sinner among us who doesn't want to come to repentance, Matthew 18 tells us how to walk through that. We gather others in the community around and we say, hey, I see that, I see that you're, you're struggling with this issue. We want to help you. And if they say, no, I don't need your help. I'm going to keep doing my thing. I'm going to keep saying I'm a part of this body, but I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to change. Well, we still love that person. But Matthew 18 says, eventually, we treat that person like a Gentile and tax collector. How do you treat a Gentile and tax collector? Like somebody you love, like somebody that is, is very valuable to God, like somebody who needs redemption, but you don't treat them like they're part of the church. So there comes a point, if I'm so stiff-necked that I won't listen to you anymore, you might have to say, Matt, I love you, but you're not part of us anymore. And that sounds harsh, doesn't it? But it's loving. What could have been different for Ananias and Sapphira? You know, I, I haven't known a lot of Christians that have just dropped dead physically, but I've known a lot of Christians that are spiritually dead. I've known a lot, of, and you have, a lot of Christians that have no power in their lives. And these things that we're doing that we think aren't a big deal, they're sucking our devotion for Christ away. Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead because they hadn't died to self. Even if most people today aren't dropping dead like Ananias and Sapphira, this passage shows us 
how God feels about deception, how God feels about greed. The world was watching the church and the world was wondering, are these people going to be a bunch of hypocrites like everybody else or is there going to be any integrity here? The world is watching the church today. Are we going to be who we say we are? Or are we going to be just like everybody else and say one thing and live a different way? And as terrible as that was for Ananias and Sapphira to drop dead, it sent a message to the church that God is not playing games. And there is a cost to hypocrisy. And so if we're a broke down sinner, I don't care if you've robbed 10 banks, God loves you. But God's not playing games with you either. He's not playing games with me. And there's a difference between just being broken and hurting versus being a chest out, stiff-necked hypocrite. God opposes the proud. And we see that in this passage. But He gives grace to the humble. So regardless of what we may be in, the band's coming up. God calls us to humble ourselves to humble ourselves, to repent, to return to Him, to get involved with Christian community, to share with some people, hey, I'm, I'm, I need help. Um, your life is either a witness to God's goodness or it's a warning of the folly of idolatry. Let's